Peace. Peace. I'm very receptive to noise pollution. You know, there's so much noise in our world today. It's so beautiful to be here this morning in the first meeting to remember the Lord Jesus Christ just as he asked us to do. You know, there's a verse in the Bible, Psalm 46, and it says, Be still and know that I am God. Now that word still means be quiet. Shh. That's what it means. Shh. If you want to get to know God, you have to get away from all the noise and the clamor of this world. Got to get into a secluded place and be silent. Open your Bible, of course, and let God speak to you. And meditate. It's called one of the spiritual disciplines. And we're going to look into the Word of God this morning. Matthew, please, chapter 27. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Before I read, I would like also to express my delight at being present at the morning meeting this morning. It was, for me, exceedingly precious. Some of you might say, well, you're the visiting preacher, and we usually expect the visiting preacher to take part. How come you didn't take part? Well, you see, I believe you should come to a meeting like this, the morning meeting, the breaking of bread. I believe you should come prepared. But you should not come determined to speak. Why is that? Because you wait on the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly was my experience being here this morning, that as each one participated and as we sang together the songs of praise, we had a wonderful time of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it was exceedingly precious. All about the glory of Christ, the glory that was his, the glory of his manhood, the glory of... His death, his death, the glory of his resurrection, his coming again. And I love that verse which our Lord spoke before he died when he prayed to his father and he said, Father, I will that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. We're going to see him one day in all his glory. And it's going to be absolutely staggering. 
in the coming eternal state, there's no need for the sunshine. Now, Florida has lovely sunshine. Back up there in old Canada, it's freezing and cloudy. And my daughter, who was for, in Florida here for three weeks, she flew back to England, where it's all cold and cloudy and wet. Florida, the sun shines frequently. But that's nothing. The glory of the sunshine is nothing to be compared to the glory of heaven. Heaven. Are you looking forward to going to heaven? Yes, sir. Amen. I hope you're prepared. I hope you're prepared. Now, this morning we talked about the sufferings of Christ. Remarkable story. Matthew 27 is one of the most solemn chapters in the Bible. It talks about the crucifixion of Christ. So, in a sense, we are continuing in that theme. And I'd like you to turn to Matthew 27 and look at verse 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him. That means they stripped him naked. And they put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him. They mocked him. They mocked the Son of God, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. And they took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink, and they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him. With the scribes and Pharisees said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. 
The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are solemn words, and I want us to contemplate them this morning. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you would there read some very important words concerning the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and the third day he rose again from the dead. The whole intent of Paul in his preaching and indeed it should be the intent of every preacher is to preach Christ crucified. Risen from the dead, gone to heaven, will return to take his people home to be with himself. And this morning, as we contemplate this section that I have read, I want us to be moved. I want us to be moved in our very being with regards to this awful scene. There's not much emotion expressed, incidentally. These are historical facts. When the Holy Spirit gave us this account of the crucifixion of Christ, He gave us the facts. There's very little play on the emotions. But when you get alone with God in silence and take this down and gather to remember the Lord Jesus Christ as we did this morning in the breaking of bread, don't be afraid of your emotions. Speak to God and tell Him how much you love Him for sending His Son into the world to be our Savior. There are four things I want to bring out in this chapter in the time that we have. And they illustrate the figure of speech which we know now, which we know as irony. You've been taught this in school, no doubt. Irony is truth which is standing on its head. Like, for example... The Bible says the first shall be last. Now, how is that possible? It's irony. Yes. And the last shall be first. That's irony. It's the opposite of what is really meant. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. These are figures of speech. They are really... This irony has got a cutting edge to it, doesn't it? It has a certain ridicule about it, and particularly as we shall see with regards to our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember King David, one of the most classic examples of irony. He was in middle-aged life, and he had great victories as a great leader of the people of Israel against the enemy. He was a mighty warrior for God. He was able to unite all the tribes of Israel. He was a man of justice. 
He was highly gifted. He was a magnificent poet and a songwriter. The Psalms, most of the Psalms were written by David. You're aware of this. But in middle life, ah, he was getting tired of uh, fighting. So he said to the soldiers and his, gen- his generals and so on, you go out there and fight, I'm going to take a rest. And so he goes up to the top of his house. You remember the story. And looking over there, he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. And he lusts after that woman. This is the mighty David. He seduced the lady. The husband of the lady was away in the battlefield. He was fighting. That's where David should have been. Cut a long story short, you know, of course, what happened. She became pregnant. David tried to cover it up, the whole thing. He sent for the husband. The husband didn't really want to come. He wanted to fight. Husband came. And the whole idea behind David bringing the husband home was to blame him for the pregnancy. To blame the husband for David's adultery. Shame on David. He's gone down in history. This was a moment of shame. Now, none of us is perfect. I'm aware of that. So along comes Nathan the prophet. Nathan's the man of God. And he's visiting the king. So he says to the king, told him the king about a parable. About, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this child, of course, uh, was taken away and murdered and so on. And David, David got really angry at this. And David wants to know who this person was. God knows. Nathan knows. And David, it was revealed to David that it was all his fault. First, Second Samuel chapter 12, if you want the details. Who is this? Who is this man who deceives this other man? Nathan said, you're the man. You're the man, David. And then David, of course, realized what was going on. And he wept and he he asked forgiveness from God. It's a solemn story. But you see the irony of it. He, He wanted to blame somebody else when it was his fault. All the time. And in Matthew 27, we see this kind of irony. The setting, of course, is very obvious. Jesus is 33 and a half years of age. He has fallen afoul of the authorities, the religious authorities. They're very suspicious of him, very suspicious of his motives, and they feared rebellion. Jesus must be crushed, they said, even though he was completely innocent, even though he was a beautiful person. And went about healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and so on. Even though they knew that Jesus must be crushed. And they're still crushing Jesus today. Still crushing him. They reject the fact that he's the son of God. They reject that he's the savior of the world. That's what the world is still doing today. And if you're not saved... If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you have joined that gang of crushing. Now, maybe the Lord has led you here today. I trust he has. And you may come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So they got permission to 
prosecute Jesus. And the story, of course, is well known. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is this. They mocked Jesus as being a king. Well, he was a king. And he is a king. Now, that's the irony of it. Now, please, would you look at verse 26? They released Barabbas. They scourged Jesus. Now, what did they do? They took, took Jesus into the common hall and they stripped him. Now, look what they did. They put on him a scarlet robe and when they had plaited a crown of thorns. You're a king? Well, here's a crown for you. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they, the reed would be the scepter which the king would hold. It was only a stick. That's all. They, they gave him a stick representing a, a scepter. They bowed the knee before him. They mocked him. They mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! But he is king! He is the king of all kings! Do you see the irony here? And this crown of thorns, which they crushed into his head, and the scarlet, they dressed him up as a king, and then they mocked him! If this doesn't touch your heart, I don't know what will. The spit, they spat on him. They beat him. They took, the, they took the stick out of his hand and they hit him over the head with it. They beat him. These cruel Roman soldiers. Now God knows. And Matthew knows. Who wrote this book. Matthew knows. And we know who are believers in Christ that he is king. Praise God. In fact, Matthew, as you very well know, is the, is the gospel that, 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 that emphasizes the kingship of Christ. You look at the very opening chapters that show the genealogy of Christ. You see, he's from the lineage of David, who was probably the most respected king in spite of his sins that Israel ever had. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7. The King, the Lord Jesus Christ, just about 30 years of age, he reveals to the world the standard of life in the kingdom, his kingdom. Our people today, even atheists, when they read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7, they do not believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. They do not believe that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. But they do believe that these are some of the most remarkable words that were ever written. So they are. Our Lord gives us an insight into those three chapters of His kingdom. Now, those of us who are saved, Jesus Christ is our King. And we live in his kingdom. It has not been recognized by the world, but we recognize it. And one day we're going to reign with this king. We're going to reign with Christ. You and I, saved by the sovereign grace of God, we're going to reign with him on this earth. Oh man, this is a wonderful salvation, I tell you. At the trial, of course, they said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, yes, I am. I am. But he's no threat. 
He's no threat to the nation. He's not calling upon people to take up arms. No. Before he left this earth, after he rose, you remember in Matthew 28, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's king. That's kingly talk. He's king of the universe. He is king of those who are mocking him. He is king of those who are rejecting him. The very same today. He wants to be your king. He wants to be your king. Uh, And he wants you to bow before him and confess your sins and put your trust in him as your savior. And to live for him day by day. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. And that's why we delight to go to Calvary. I hope you go to Calvary every day to see your king put to shame. And yet this morning, the irony of it, this morning, we gazed upon the emblems. And then we gaze upon the cross in our minds and the shame and the shame that our Lord endured. But oh, the glory of it. Glory to thee, thy Son of God most high. All praise to thee. Glory to thee, enthroned above the sky, who died for me. High on thy throne, thine ear, Lord Jesus, bend as grateful hearts now to thyself. Ascend. Is he your king this morning? Is he your king? That's the question. The world we live in is a broken world. It loves power. It loves power. Everybody loves power. Everybody, you know, I'm number one. I'm number one. When I was a school teacher back there in Canada, You know, I was never a fan of football, and I understand this is a big football day in America. But I used to, I used to, you know, I was the vice principal of the school, and I would go down into the, down into where they were all getting ready for the game, and and they were all, the boys were all excited. They were all excited. They were all keyed up. This is what happens. They get all keyed up. We are number one. We are number one. And then they go out and they get beaten. (laughs) See. And then they come in, they drag themselves into the dressing room, and one's blaming the other. They're not number one. It's all hype. That's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. Think of these elections that we have all over the country, and these debates, and the nice phrases, and the lovely promises that are made. And then they're elected, and then they become self-serving. Not all of them, I admit. But Jesus exercised his authority as king, not by sitting on a nice throne and having people bow down before him. That image is very important. But Jesus exercised his authority and power as king in service, in service. He visited this planet in order to be the same. From heaven you came, helpless babe, into our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king, who calls us now to worship him, to give our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. Is that what you do? Is Jesus your king? Do you serve him? What kind of a life are you living if you call yourself a Christian? What kind of a life are you living? Are you serious? Do you daily serve the king? How crucial this is. Christians must be the same as Christ. We are not number one. Christ is. Christ is. And as the old hymn says, Jesus never fails. Never fails. They mocked him for claiming to be a king. But he is a king. Amen? That's feeble. They mocked him for being a king, but he is a king. Is he a king? That's it. A little bit of Pentecostalism, you know, doesn't, doesn't harm the old soul. I love it when the people of God, you know, get really in with it and understand what's going on and feel in their heart of heart that this one who was mocked and cruelly treated and died on Calvary's cross is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's risen from the dead and he is Lord. And then they also said something else. Look at verse 40, please. Verse 39. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders, saying he saved others, himself he cannot save. The man on the cross who is utterly powerless. You get this? Now listen carefully. The man on the cross who is utterly powerless. He's nailed to a tree. They nailed my Lord upon the tree and they left him dying there. And to anybody passing by, which people did all the time, I mean, these crucifixions were for show to the public. He's powerless. (laughs) Powerless. But he's not powerless. God knows. Matthew knows. And we know who are saved by the grace of God that the one who is appearing to be powerless on the cross is the almighty, omnipotent creator of the universe. And they mocked him for being powerless. You and I think differently, don't we? We believe that he's the omnipotent son of God. God in human flesh. And you have all of these images. You have all of these images indicating that he appears to be powerless. I mean, he's stripped naked. He's nailed to a tree. He's got a crown of thorns. And they mock him and they shout out, Come down from the cross. Come down. You said you would destroy the temple. (laughs) How can you destroy the temple? You're powerless. Ah. 
But he is powerful. He is powerful. In spite of the shame and the agony and the weakness and the mocking title and the casting lots and so on, he is. He's the all-powerful one. Come down, they said, and we will believe you. Really? You know, Matthew prepares the way for this, of course. In Matthew 16, we have these words. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then from verse 21, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, from that time, Jesus begins to prepare them for his death. Peter, by his confession, of course, did not mean that Jesus would die. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He meant you are David and you're going to reign. But Jesus was now preparing them. Five times, by the way, in Matthew, Jesus refers to his coming death. The disciples didn't buy it. Peter rebuked. He had the nerve to take Jesus aside and rebuked him for talking about death. They thought he was a coming king. They thought he was going to establish a kingdom. And they were going to be, you know, high Highly important in the kingdom that God was going to create in Christ Jesus. But they never understood. They just didn't understand until after he rose from the dead. If any man will take up his cross and follow me, says Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. He wants you and I to do the same thing. I mean, this takes my breath away. We have a cross to bear. We are duty-bound in the service of God to be ready to be put to shame. And we are put to shame today. We are mocked. We are scorned. We're considered as imbeciles by the scientific community and largely by the political community as well. And certainly the educational community, as I've often made reference to. We are called upon to bear a cross. You know, they mocked and they joked about the cross. You don't mock about Auschwitz where they slaughtered millions of Jews in the gas chambers. You don't mock about that. But they mock about the Son of God who bore our sins in such a disgusting manner on the cross. We cannot domesticate the cross. We like to. We like to wear the cross around our necks and have it shining with lovely bright gold glitter. We love to have that. Various other ornamentations, monuments, pictures. All very beautiful, but the cross is not a beautiful sight. It's an ugly sight. And you know, you can't be the disciple unless you're prepared to take up the cross and die. Do you hear what I said? I mean, we have made Christianity so easy today. I don't know how you folks who are saved, and I also examine my own heart. I mean, how do we take our Christianity? We're not very serious about it. You have to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And that means you will be ostracized, you will be mocked, you will be put to shame. Now, we do live in a 
a country that is supposedly a Christian nation. I can't say that for Canada. Canada is a secular society and they have removed all religion from the schools completely. You don't want anything to do with God and so on. Now the man who is utterly powerless, they say, is powerful. Is powerful. I believe in my own heart that the one who died on Calvary's cross, seemingly in a powerless state, is the mighty Son of God, in whom all power. He created all things, and by him were all things created. In our churches today, and our assemblies also, so much activity and organization, and that's fine, don't get me wrong, but there's very little dying. Very little dying. Paul, he gloried in his weakness. He gloried in the shame that was heaped upon him. We must do the same. Now look please also at verse 41 again. The chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders saying he saved others. Himself he cannot save. How do you like that? They mocked him for being a king. And he is a king. They mocked him for being powerless on that cross, dying in agony and in shame. But he's not powerless. He's the all-powerful God. Who came from heaven to be your savior and mine. And that leads me to my third irony. They mocked him because the man who cannot save himself said he would save others. And that's true. Now, I suppose, theoretically speaking, he could have come down from the cross and said, away with humanity, away with these people. They will spend eternity in hell and the lake of fire. But no, he didn't. The one on the cross who could not save himself because he came to save you and me. That's amazing. That's amazing. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. That's what the angel said to Joseph. This baby who will be born, he will save his people from their sins. And you read Matthew's gospel, incidentally. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about Jesus going about forgiving people their sins. And the Sermon on the Mount I've mentioned at all, the Sermon on the Mount I have mentioned already, it's also dealing with the, the question of sinners. All his miracles that he, that he performed when he was here on this earth, they're all tied to the sin in the person who was miraculously healed. It was a moral imperative for Christ to die for us. That's the truth. That's the truth. You know the story of the Titanic, of course. You probably saw it on TV. 
My father worked on the Titanic. That wasn't why it sank, by the way. <clears throat> the Titanic was built in Belfast, which had the largest single shipyard in the world at one time. It's now completely gone, completely gone. Now, the movie showed something which was just not true. On the movie, they said there were not enough lifeboats. And that the rich tried to get out first by bribing the pursers and so on aboard the ship. And the soldiers firing shots so that the women and children could get out first. That was not true. That did not happen. In reality, it did. It happened in the movie. So why change history? Why, why, why lie about it? Well, if the truth were really told that in those days... It was a very important fact that women and children would go first. Very important. That was the way people lived in those days. And nothing like what happened on the movie actually took place. But you see, if the truth were told today in the 21st century, the people wouldn't believe it. Because it's not the practice today to the same degree as it was years ago. And why add the guns? Why add the guns to it? You see, they've lost the moral imperative. They've lost the whole concept of truth. Make up your own truth. And that's what we have exactly in the world today. There's no such thing as absolute truth. For Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The people today in our academic institutions say this is totally unacceptable. You make your own truth. You be true to yourself. Well, that's not what the Bible says. If you want to, if you want to be saved... If you want to know your sins forgiven, if you want to know that eternity is secure for you in heaven, you have to put your trust in Christ. And he said, with absolute certainty, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You see, he had a moral imperative. He came to do the Father's will. This is exactly what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And that's what you and I must do. We must do the will of God who has revealed himself in his holy word. They said he saved others. He cannot save himself. They said he was powerless to save. They said he was powerless, but he's most powerful. They said... He can save others, but he can't save himself. And finally, with this I close. This cry of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was a cry of despair. Maybe a better word would be desolation. It was a lament. It rang out all over the place. Jesus was about to expire. And from his innermost being, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God. My God. Why have you abandoned me? Why? 
from the sixth to the ninth hour, from twelve o'clock noon to three o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is highest in the sky. The whole place was dark. And the Son of God died on Calvary's cross in agony and in shame. And he cried out in despair, My God, why have you forsaken me? This was the time of the evening sacrifice. And if you read your Bible carefully, you will discover that every time somebody was involved in the evening sacrifice, God came to the rescue. But not here. Not here. Not here. You remember David cried out these words in Psalm 22. And this was a cry of desolation. Jesus was not lashing out to God as some people imagine. No, no, no. He's God in human flesh. But Matthew knows. And God knows. And we know that this this accusation that he doesn't trust God is just not true. He does trust God. He does. If you look at the last half of Psalm 22, when the first half is all about suffering and dying, and the Lord quotes from Psalm 22, the last half is all about faith. Faith. He trusts in God. And then he died, of course, and the veil was rent in twain, and the way into the holiest has been opened. Sin has been conquered. This is what's happening at Calvary's cross. And I love William Kuyper, the poet who lived in the 18th century. Lovely old Kuyper. He was a friend of John Newton, you know, who was saved. He was a slave trader and he was gloriously saved and he wrote that lovely hymn, Amazing Grace. Brilliant poet was William Kuyper. Brilliant writer, brilliant essayist. Some of you may have studied him in school. Brilliant scholar, brilliant hymn writer. But alas, he suffered severe clinical depression. He went into awful deep depression. So much so that he had to be put into an asylum. And he attempted suicide. But he wrote these lovely words. Amazing. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him, trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The words of William Kuyper. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would not be forsaken. So that I would not be forsaken. 
Imagine dying in your sins and going to a lost eternity forsaken by God forever. Forever. No hope of ever being saved. God have mercy upon anyone in this building right now who's not a believer in Christ. God have mercy upon you. Do you know you can go out that door in the next few minutes and if you're not saved, your sins could all be forgiven. All be forgiven. All you have to do is to come to Calvary Come to the cross. We've read about it. We've spoken about it. You confess your sins and you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And then you have to go on to live it. Now my brothers and sisters, how is the life, how is the Christian life going? If Jesus did all of this for you and for me, what are you doing from day to day for him? That's the challenge. Got to ask the Lord to help us to to teach us how to live and die. To be moved by the Holy Spirit to live for Christ in these difficult days. And to proclaim the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The man who was mocked as king, he is king. The man who was mocked as being utterly powerless is all powerful. The man whom they claim could not save himself. He saves others. And the man who cries out in desolation, they assumed he didn't put his trust in God. He trusts God. And he wants us to do the same. So what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him this morning? Will you come in here just the same as you left? Or will you allow the word of God to penetrate your very being? I trust that will be the case. May the Lord bless his word. Shall we pray? Our Father, we bow before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. What a wonderful Savior of men. To do what he did. Father, we can't take it in. It'll be all eternity gazing upon him in glory and the sheer wonder of what he accomplished when he was here on earth will be our delight throughout all eternity. May it be our delight here on earth until he comes to take us to be with himself. May we give ourselves as he did with this moral imperative in our minds and in our hearts to love God and to serve him with all our hearts.
We thank you, Father, for the assembly here, for the dear saints who love you, seek to serve you, and spread the gospel. We pray, Lord, that your mighty power might be leashed upon this, leashed upon this assembly. And as they go about to witness for you, we pray, Father, that you would bless them and give them the joy of seeing many souls saved. These things we ask, Father, giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.